Hello everyone, I'm Suzanne Garrett from the 8.30 service and our Bible reading this morning is from 1 John 1, 5 to 10. The title is Light and Darkness, Sin and Forgiveness. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Secondly, James 5, 13 to 16, the prayer of faith. If anyone among you is in trouble, let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well the Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as Peter has said today, we're thinking about the topic of confession. And I will confess that that doesn't really seem like a very fun place for us to be finishing off this sermon series about living a life of worship. Confession is not something, probably for most of us, that brings joy to mind, rather probably quite the opposite. I wonder what comes to mind for you when you think about this idea of confessing your sin. Uh, for me, I'm immediately taken back to high school and I'm a 16-year-old boy again who has been caught wagging school. I remember very vividly being caught skipping school and being sent back to face the music, to go straight to the principal's office where I had to confess what I'd done and receive the judgment that I deserved. Confessing your sin is something probably for a lot of us that just brings a kind of a pit in our stomach. It's not something that we particularly look forward to, I suspect. Nevertheless, confessing sin is actually part of the Christian life. It kind of goes hand in hand with being a Christian. In fact, if you are a Christian, then you're someone who has already confessed your sin because becoming a Christian involves the process of confessing your sin, doesn't it? The Christian life starts by acknowledging that we have sinned against God, that we are deserving of his wrath and judgment, and that our sin needs forgiven. And so we, we come and we tell that to God, and we ask for forgiveness through the Lord Jesus. All of us, in some sense, are familiar with confession, but I suspect that for most of us, confession doesn't play a very active, regular part of our kind of devotional life. It's not, it doesn't factor into how we think about living a life of worship. But... Today, what we're going to be thinking about is the fact that the Bible does call us to practice this habit. And I think it actually calls us to practice it in two main ways. And so that's what I want to hope to show you today from those Bible passages that we just had read out for us. The two main ways that the Bible calls us to confess our sin. I'm going to pray for God's help because I think we're going to need it today. So I'd love it if you'd pray with me. 
dear God, we need your help as we come to your word now and as we confront ourselves with things that are probably going to be hard to hear. We need grace. We need your spirit to soften our hearts, to make us receptive to what we're going to read and what we're going to think about. Please do your work in us during this time, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, the first passage that we're going to have a look at today is that text from 1 John chapter 1. 1 John is a fabulous little letter in which the Apostle John is concerned about a few key things. One of the main things John is concerned about throughout this whole letter is the relationship that Christians are to have to ongoing sin in their life. Now, it is possible as we come to this topic and as we come to this passage, which is going to challenge us to think about confessing our sin, we might be people who are sitting here today thinking, you know what, actually, I don't really need to hear this sermon. I don't need to hear about confessing my sin because there's just not that much sin in my life. Maybe you've been a Christian for decades and decades and all of the major sins in your life have been dealt with. I hear that. But I do want you to notice that after John has done his little introduction here in chapter 1, the very first topic that he wants to address with these Christians, if you like, probably the most important thing of all that he's got to say in this letter is to teach them how they are to navigate the reality of ongoing sin in their life. This is important for all Christians, no matter whether you've been a Christian for five days or five decades. Now, in that passage that we had read for us, chapter 1, verses 5 to 10, uh, John is talking to Christians, uh, which he describes as people who are walking in the light. And he says that people like that, who walk in the light, who have fellowship with, their, with the Son of God, they are people who actively admit their sin. But actually, it's more than just admitting that they have sin in their life. John says, verse 9, that Christians are people who confess their sin. Uh, verse 9 there describes uh, confession of sin as almost like a transaction that's taking place between the Christian and God. That's the type of confession, the first type of confession that we are going to be thinking about, confessing our sins directly to God. Now, for John, the marker of being a forgiven person is, is not that all the sin in your life is gone, that you're spotless and, and free of sin. That's not the way John describes the Christian life. Rather, he says, the marker of being a forgiven person is actually your relationship to the sin in your life. And John says that the relationship ought to be that you make war on your sin. Uh, one of the signs that you are a Christian is that you don't make peace with your sin. You make war with it. Uh, now, as you hear that, and, and, and today, if you are someone who is uncomfortable with the sin in your life, if, if the sin that you know you have in your life grieves you, then I want you to recognize, friends, that a miracle has taken place, that that is actually a work of God in your life. Because the default kind of posture of the human heart is not to admit sin. It's not to hate sin. It's actually the opposite. The, the default posture of the human heart is to deflect and to deny and to cover up our sin, to pretend like there is no sin in our life, just like Adam and Eve did. Uh, Adam and Eve who hid from God when they sinned. Adam and Eve who covered up their nakedness, their shame. Adam and Eve who denied any wrongdoing. That's the default posture of the human heart. And so if you're someone who can at least admit to your sin, then you're off to a good start. God's already doing something in your life. Now, I want to be clear what, what John is not talking about here. Uh, 
when he tells Christians that they ought to confess their sins, I want to be clear that, that John is not saying that if you don't confess your sin, that it hasn't been paid for. That's, that's not what's going on. Actually, for the Christian, anytime we confess sin, please understand that we are confessing forgiven sin, sin that has already been dealt with. Because do you notice the assurance that John gives there in verse 9? That if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all righteousness. It's not may, he will do this. We can have assurance that God's forgiveness of us is never in question. The sins that we forget, that we confess, have already been forgiven once for all through the death of Jesus. And, and so why then does John tell us to forgive our sins? If our sins have already been forgiven once we've come to Christ, why go on confessing sin in your life? Well, it's a good question. And I suspect that the answer is because John knows that to live with unconfessed sin in your life is torture. That confessing what is actually going on in the deepest, darkest depths of your soul is good for you. That it brings a kind of a benefit to you. Uh, in, in one of my favorite Psalms in all of the Bible, Psalm 32, King David talks about this reality of living with unconfessed sin. Let's have a read of Psalm 32, verses 1 to 5 quickly. Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, when there was sin in my life that I hadn't confessed, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Verse 5, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You notice how David describes that experience of living with unconfessed sin in verses 3 and 4. That there's a, a kind of a, a psychological, a spiritual, perhaps even a physical burden that David is living with. It's torture to him. In uh, Edgar Allan Poe's famous short story, The Telltale Heart, uh, he, he tells the story of a, a man who is living with the kind of guilt-induced self-torture of unconfessed sin. In the story, the narrator, he murders his roommate and he hides his roommate's remains under the floorboards. And then when the police come to investigate the crime, uh, he sits, the police and himself, on chairs directly on top of the floorboards where the body is hid underneath. And as the detective calmly asks him questions, the narrator of the story becomes more and more agitated because he's convinced that he could hear his victim's heart actually beating louder and louder and louder until finally he jumps up and he admits what he's done, furious that the detective had been ignoring the obvious beating of the man's heart this whole time. He, you see, only confession could ease this guilty man's conscience. And it's kind of like that with David in Psalm 32, that he's, he's uncomfortable. There is a physical thing happening to him until he confesses his sin. And it's like that with us too. John says, therefore, 
confess your sin. Don't live with that pain any longer. Because look what John says back to 1 John chapter 9, what the result of this is. The result is that God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all righteousness. That's a cleansing kind of a word. Now understand that what John is not saying, he's not saying that when you confess your sins in an ongoing way, that they will sort of be expunged from your guilty record. No, that's already happened when you became a Christian. No, the kind of cleansing that John is talking about here, the purification, you could think of it like kind of scraping the barnacles off a ship's hull again so that the ship can move freely. We need to confess our sin on a regular basis to God in the same way that a child needs to own up to their mistakes before their mum and dad. Not in order to earn their parents' love, but to rest in it and to know it more fully. That's why we need to confess our sin. And if, if you're a Christian today, then I trust that you are already familiar with that, that feeling of relief, that freedom that comes with confession. If, if you are a Christian, then I hope that you revel in that regularly. Hopefully you've done that many times, bared your soul clean before the Lord and asked for purification. It's a wonderful feeling. And I want to say, actually, if you're watching today and you are not a Christian, but you're familiar with living with the weight of sin on your shoulders, then I want you to know, friends, that you don't have to live with that weight, that the Lord God is willing and eager to forgive you if you'll just come to him and confess your sin and turn in trust to the Lord Jesus who paid for your sin for you by dying on the cross. God would be only too happy to forgive your sin. But the question we're really wrestling with today is, well, how does confession of sin like that, how does it act as worship? Uh, let's connect those dots for a little bit, because that's, that's what we're thinking about in this series. How is confession actually an act of worship? I wonder if you know what the word confession actually means in, in the kind of in the strictest definitional kind of sense. The word confess literally means to say the same thing. And so the question is, well, when I confess my sin, in what sense am I saying the same thing? Saying the same thing as who? Well, I hope it's obvious. When we confess our sin, we are saying the same thing that God says about our sin. That living in that way is a problem. When we confess our sin, what we're doing is we're agreeing with God's assessment of us. And so as we do that, as we say, Lord God, I have fallen short of your perfect standard. And I know that I am deserving of judgment, that I am deserving of punishment for what I've done. As we confess and lay that out, we're agreeing with God's standard and we're showing God to be the wise one, for God to be the only true and good measure of morality in the whole universe. When we confess our sin, God is exalted as the perfect standard of righteousness, you see. But confession is worship in more ways than just that. Because confession actually doesn't end there. I want to be very clear about this. That confession is not merely about, here are all the, my mistakes, Lord. Now, confession, if it's done rightly, should lead to celebration and exulting in the forgiveness that Jesus has won for us. Just like David prayed at the beginning of Psalm 32. Confession never stops with just saying, I messed up, Lord, please forgive me. No, confession, if it's done rightly, always leads us to, to sing, I am forgiven, hallelujah. And so do you see, friends, that 
Confession should be for us a doorway to joy. Confession should always drive us back to the foot of the cross where we are reminded that Jesus has paid our debt once and for all and we can rest in that. Confession is a doorway to joy. So if, if confessing our sins to God is something that the Bible expects us to be doing regularly, if it is for our benefit, then how do we actually go about doing that? How do we, how do we make this something that we, we do regularly? Well, I want to give you a tip here. Just one quick tip, really. And that is, if you want to be someone who, who walks through the doorway to joy that is confession, then, friend, you have to see your sin clearly. That's the start. You have to see your own sin clearly because you can't confess the sin that you don't see, right? And so what do you do? I think, I think what you ought to do is you ought to pray and you ought to ask God to show you what is in your blind spot? What sin in your life do you not see? Pray and ask God that. Pray and ask that the, the scales might fall from your eyes. Cry out to God that he would lower the, defensive, uh, the defenses of your heart so that you can actually receive that truth, that you can recognize your own sin, so that you can see it and feel it, feel the weight of it, that you can then grieve over it and confess it and repent of that sin. I think we ought to pray that God would do that for us on the regular. Now, aside from, from, from just praying and asking God to reveal us, reveal our sin to us, how else can we do it? Well, Martin Luther, the famous reformer, had a practice where every night, he would, uh, as he was going to sleep, he would lie down and he would recite the Ten Commandments and he would also recite the Lord's Prayer. And as he, as he sort of listed off these uh, commands of God, he would think back on his day and consider where he had either broken or fallen short of God's perfect standards in those two kind of places. For him, that was something that led to a confession of sin on a nightly basis. Now, I think there's some, something uh, quite wise about that, but I think there might actually be a danger in trying to do that that it might lead to a kind of a, a checklist mentality of holiness, that we might sort of actually reduce the requirements that God has on us and narrow sin to just a few very important things. So perhaps actually that would be an unhelpful thing, but I think the lesson we can learn from Martin Luther is that the best place for us to see our sin clearly is in the light of Scripture. That actually we ought to make a regular habit as we read Scripture of considering our own failure against it. It is the measuring stick. And so it ought to be our practice every time we open the Bible to consider how have I and how am I falling short of what God is asking me to do here. That would be a really helpful way for you to be able to see your sin more regularly so that you would confess it. And the, the last piece of advice that I'll just give you here is that I don't think we ought to be satisfied with just confessing that we are sinful, you know, uh, confessing that we are sinners. No, we actually ought to confess our sins specifically. Because you see, what happens is when we, when we pray and we confess, God, I know that I've been sinful today, please forgive me. When we talk in kind of vague generalities and we don't specifically name the sins that we've committed, what we're actually doing is we are avoiding looking directly at what we've done. Uh, we take shortcuts by not naming our sins. And in doing so, we avoid the true horror of it. So we ought to confess specific sins. Not just, God, I confess that I'm angry, but 
God, I confess that I was angry with my kids when they didn't do what I wanted this morning. Please forgive me, God. But get specific like that. Stare your sin in the face as much as you possibly can. Now, obviously, this is not about naming your sins so that God can be informed of them. God already knows our sins. It's not about informing God. It's about forming us forming our conscience so that we see our sin with sharper horror. And as the clarity of our sin is before us, we will see all the more clearly the majesty of Jesus. We will be drawn to worship and exalt him for his faithfulness and his love towards wretched people like you and me. That's the first way that I think the Bible tells us to confess our sins directly to God. The second way is more of a, a secondary kind of way. And it's from uh, James chapter 5, that second passage that we had, had read out there. And, and I want to be clear, this is, this is much more of a secondary way for us to confess our sins, but it's important nonetheless. Now, as we read through James chapter 5, um, you probably had a number of questions about that passage because there's some really hectic stuff going on there, some very difficult things uh, to understand. But broadly speaking... Uh, James describes in verses 14 and 15 a very kind of exceptional circumstance here where the elders of the church are being called uh, to one sick person uh, to pray over them. And it seems as though in the course of praying for this sickness that some other sin gets exposed and that the elders of the church end up praying uh, about that sin too. And it says that, that he will be forgiven. Now, Lots of questions about that. You can feel free to ask me those questions in the podcast and I'll try and answer them. But the important thing for us here is actually just to notice what what James says next in verse 16. Verse 16, James says, Therefore, that is, you know, in light of what what I've just said, in light of the elders kind of having this prayer gathering and praying for a sick person and and, uh, uh, dealing with their sin as they confess their sin, in light of that, in fact, in the same way as that, James says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And I think what James is saying here is that just not just for the elders, but actually for all of us in the the normal course of Christian life, that there is to be kind of just an honesty and a truthfulness and a purity of heart so that we continually just admit and confess our sin to appropriate people in our lives. And the outcome, James says, is that some kind of a healing is going to take place. Uh, Some kind of a a spiritual, psychological, physical healing, perhaps, like happened to David in Psalm 32. That burden is lifted as sins are confessed and prayed about with fellow believers. And and so do notice that, that this command here in James 5 just completely blows out of the water That Catholic notion about needing to confess to a special priest who has some special power to absolve your sins, it blows that notion right out of the water. This is about every Christian just confessing to any other Christian who it is appropriate to confess to. And I think really what James is is describing here is just an extension of what the Bible says in a whole number of places about Christians being people who speak the truth. That we are people of the truth and people of the light, as John says in 1 John chapter 1. We are people who speak truth to one another. We've put off falsehood. We don't cover ourselves up and try and present ourselves as somebody different to who we really are. That's not what Christians do. We, we speak truth. 
And so James says, well, because that's who you are and because there's a, a benefit to it, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Now, I know that as, as we come sort of face-to-face and wrestle with that command, that probably most of our reactions are going to be like a real oh, hesitation because that sounds so invasive, doesn't it? To have somebody else actually know the, the details of the sins that I have committed, it's intrusive. And who wants that? I trust that by now you've all seen, and I know some of you will have at least experienced, uh, the, the swab test for COVID-19. Even just seeing the pictures of it, seeing footage of it, is enough to make your stomach turn, isn't it? That long swab that goes all the way up your nose, that, that intrudes well beyond really where it should ever go. It makes you queasy to think about. Can I say that this kind of intrusiveness that James is describing here, that we might intrude in one another's lives to the point where we understand the sin that each other are committing, that might have that same kind of stomach-turning reaction to each of you. You might have a hundred reasons right now going through your mind why you just don't want to do that. And if I could try and summarize perhaps what's at the heart of some of that hesitation that we feel about obeying a command like this, I think for most of us, the reason why we just couldn't even imagine obeying this command in our wildest dreams is because we fear the loss of our reputation, that we really worry about somebody else knowing what's going on in my life in the deepest, darkest corners of it. I think the truth is that many Christians will claim that they are willing to lose their lives for Jesus, but in reality, they won't even risk their reputations. Sadly, I think a lot of us are more preoccupied with having other people think that we are like Christ rather than actually being like him ourselves. You know, in God's strange providence this week, I have had a sore tooth all week. And I know that it's been there for a lot longer than just this last week, but I've been ignoring it. Now it's risen to the point where I can ignore it no longer and the pain is, is real. But I've been putting off doing anything about it. I mean, putting off seeing the doctor, seeing the the dentist, because I know uh, that it's going to hurt me. (laughs) I know that I am going to be embarrassed, that I'm going to have to explain why I haven't taken good enough care of my teeth and why this has been the result. I'm scared of facing this reality and letting somebody else know what's going on in my hidden places. And, you know, I think God has been teaching me a lesson that that it's, it's the same kind of foolishness that stops us from confessing our sin to one another. If I don't go to the dentist, it's to my own detriment. I'm missing out on the healing that could be mine. In the same way, if we choose to fear human beings rather than our creator, if we choose not to share our sin because, well, that person might lose respect for us, they might shame us, if that is more of our concern than actually being concerned to stand blameless before the Holy One, before whom one day we will stand and all the secrets of our hearts will be disclosed, then we are miscalculating at that point. Yes, it will be invasive to have somebody else know your sins. But I want to say, friends, that the invasiveness of this should not be enough to stop us from doing it. So why, why should we do this? 
why should we confess our sins to another person who is godly and trustworthy, who can pray for us? Well, I think James chapter 5 seems to be saying that actually the prayers of the people of God are a means of grace in our lives as we, as we confess our sins. Now, how does that work? As we, as we confess and as our brothers and sisters in Christ pray for us, how does God's grace operate in our lives at that point? Well, I'll tell you what I think is going on, is that I think it is humbling us. Uh, that as we confess our sins, we are being forced back onto the grace of God. Do you know, friends, there is nothing that will smash the idols of reputation and respectability in your life quicker than confessing your sins to a brother or sister. It just destroys the facade that we try and project. And that is a good thing for us. Do you know, actually, confessing your sins is not just good for you. It's good for other people too, which might sound like a strange thing to, to say. But as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are called to carry one another's burdens. Take, for example, Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. By confessing our sins, we give our brothers and sisters an opportunity to practice verses like this. And you know, we actually we gain allies for the fight because as we're confessing, we are confessing to imperfect people who deal with their own sins and struggles too. And so these people can stand alongside us and help us to wage war against our sin. They can pat us on the back and say, struggle well, brother. And that is something that we all desperately need. And so look, if, if, if you're still feeling hesitant to actually do this, hesitant to actually share your sins with a brother or sister, let me try and just reassure you by saying that I think that there are few interactions in life, few dynamics in, in human relationships that will give you a clearer experience of God's love than this. Because you see, when you confess your sins to a brother or sister in Christ and they don't run off scared, they don't get rid of you, they don't shame you, they keep loving you anyway, that is one of the most powerful experiences to teach you what the love of God is like. And that is something that I think we all desperately could do with in our lives. Now, I want to get quite practical as I finish here. Because I think that actually confessing our sins to one another, um, that this, this might be a word in season for us. Because the reality is in the time that we are living in, it's going to be very easy for us to be exceedingly private in our faith right now. If I can be honest, as your pastor, one of my biggest fears over these last couple of months and for as long as this season goes on for is that we wouldn't have our brothers and sisters in our lives like we normally do catching the sin that we might be tempted to fall into. One of my biggest fears at this point is that sin might get a foothold in us because we simply don't have enough eyes on each of us to do Galatians 6, 1 and 2, to carry one another's burdens. And so I, I would really love to see WBC 
marked by relationships like this, for us to have a, a deliberate commitment to be accountable to one another, to share our sins with one another so that we might fight them together. Do you know, at least on paper, we do have that expectation. Our church covenant, if you're a church member, you will already know this. Our church covenant says that we will carry each other's burdens, praying for each other, rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep. It is an expectation already, but I would love to see this translated into reality. And how else can we do that? How else can we share one another's burdens unless we actually open ourselves up to one another? I will say that I think when it comes to this, we have to give permission to our brothers and sisters to inquire of our souls. And I think permission has to be given. It can't be taken. There's something exceedingly offensive about coming up to someone in Christ and saying, you need to tell me about all your sins. And I think the, the healthy way for this to happen is for us to maybe find one or two members of our home group, people that we feel comfortable with, someone who we know is mature in Christ, and to say, brother, sister, I'd really like it if you could be accountable if I could be accountable to you, if you could ask me the hard questions about how I'm going in my faith, if you could ask me about my marriage, if you could ask me about how I'm spending my money, if you could ask me about whether I've visited any compromising websites, if you could ask me about how I'm treating people that I work with, if you give that permission to somebody in your life, I think that there would be great benefit. I will say that uh, there's no getting around the fact that this is going to be awkward. <laughs> and I think we just have to embrace the awkward here. Because I am convinced that on that final day, when we stand before our maker and judge and we look around at our brothers and sisters who we've walked through this life with, and as our lives are laid bare and we give an account to God, you know what, I don't think we are going to regret asking people the hard questions about their battles with sin. I think we're going to regret that we didn't do it more. So look, as we close, I just want to remind you, friends, that whilst our attitude towards confession is often to see it as something that would be uncomfortable, something that is a burden, please see, friends, that it is actually God's grace to us. It's an invitation to joy. It is an act of worship. Now, straight after the sermon, we are going to hear from some people in our church, and they're going to share very bravely their experiences about uh, confessing their sins to one another and to God. And we're hoping that those small little snippets will be inspirational to you, that you might consider how you could do the same. Uh, and then later in the service, uh, we're going to hear a song that's been written by one of our church members, Tim Fairbairn. It's a song uh, of confession, a song of, of repentance. And I would encourage you as you hear that song uh, to pray the words uh, to God as a confession. And may they inspire you to make a start at a regular, worshipful habit of confessing your sins. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us in Jesus. We thank you that all our sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future, when we put our trust in him. But thank you that you do not call us to live a life burdened down by unconfessed sin. Thank you that you invite us to find freedom and cleansing by confessing to you, by having that burden shouldered by our brothers and sisters in Christ. May we please, Lord, be people who, who embrace this discipline and this habit, who find joy and grace waiting for us as we confess our sins to you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.